Good morning, Harvest. What a blessing to be with you. If you want to make your way to 1 Peter, continuing in chapter 3, we've got one verse today. And, um, and that, trust me, especially for the fellows in the house, it's enough. All right, we will be in 1 Peter 3, 7 as you turn that way. Hey, if I don't know you, my name's Ken and Vaughn. Glad you're with us this morning. I've got the privilege of being one of the pastors and elders here and of preaching God's word this morning. Um, those of you also that are live streaming, welcome. We are glad you are a part of our worship service. And um, just what a treat it is to continue to walk through this incredibly relevant, practical, disciple-making, gospel-centered, and challenging book together that Peter has written in the first century context. I um, would offer up to you, just in way of reminder, that this passage is set in the context. And the context is the context of what he's already written, which really goes back to chapter 2, where he's saying, hey, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then he talks about a behavior, a way we live that brings credibility to what we say, that brings credibility to the gospel, the message that we proclaim. And it's how we live as citizens. Talks about our role being subservient to the government. And our role as employees. Talks about in a broken system of master and slave, we can take application to boss and employee and how we live. Uh, it, and it doesn't matter. It's not about whether you have a great boss or a corrupt boss. You're supposed to still be a faithful and good employee. And then he talks about in the home, this preeminent illustration and picture, most powerful, most poignant, is how we live in marriage with one another. Uh, what kind of wife we are, what kind of husband. The world's literally meant to look at our marriages and understand the gospel. Uh, that's convicting. I don't care how long you've been married um, or how long you hadn't been married. That's a convicting standard that husbands, you are meant to demonstrate Christ's love for the church and how you love your wife. And wives, I'm just going to tell you, we need you to be gracious this morning. Matter of fact, I ought to start with commending uh, any husbands that are here this morning. I gave you fair warning and you still came. All right, last week we talked about the wife being submitted to a husband and, and what a high calling that is. And no wife's going to do that well apart from being spirit-filled every day of her marriage uh, and, and understanding that she's doing that as unto the Lord, not because her husband has necessarily deserved it or earned it or, uh, or even based on how he's doing as a husband. She honors the Lord in being subject to her husband in the way that the text described last week. And it's the same this week for the man. For the husband, that he has a God-given stewardship as a husband, regardless of how his wife's doing, regardless of how she's treating him, regardless of whether she understands her role and is living it out faithfully or not, there's still a stewardship God's given us in how we treat our wives that's not just for her welfare, but it's for the good of the gospel that goes forth. Your testimony has credibility based on how you steward this passage. And so it is indeed a tough one. If y'all can stand to your feet. For the reading of God's word, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. This likewise is, just like a wife, just like an employee, just like a citizen, there's a role which credibilizes our gospel witness. Here it is for husbands. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of God for the people of God. The people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, thank you 
for your word. If we were left to ourselves to figure out how we should love and lead our wives, we would do so poorly. We would grow weary quickly. We would lose sight of the standard. We would inevitably compromise it to be something that we feel like we can do. And we'd have very frustrated wives and dysfunctional marriages and a gospel witness that doesn't pack much power. And so we thank you for your word. We thank you for its standard. It holds before us, Christ in the church. We thank you for the empowering of your spirit. We can depend on your might to live out these truths. And we thank you that as we pursue this standard, you, Lord Jesus, are glorified. The gospel becomes tangible. People come to know the Lord Jesus by grace through faith. There's salvation going forth through the testimony of our marriages. Let us be soft towards this. I pray that you till the soil and the husband's hearts this morning, that the seed of your word go forth and produce good fruit. And as I preach, I must decrease you, Lord Jesus, must increase. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, remember um, that what we're going to get in this text, it's countercultural to today, but it was really countercultural in that day. Peter writing in the first century, um, just like it was to pray for the emperor. You mean the guy that's persecuting Christians? Yeah. Yeah, that's counterintuitive. It's countercultural. It's a ramification of the transforming power of the gospel that we could consider our lives worth nothing. Only that Christ be demonstrated, his love be demonstrated in the world around us. We are sojourners and exiles. We have a heavenly citizenship. We can be persecuted all day long. We cannot return reviling with reviling because our citizenship is in heaven. And we want to demonstrate the love of Christ who on the cross said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So how's that going to look in a marriage we're going to talk about for husbands? And I want you to remember that this message will be countercultural. In that day, women were second-class citizens. They were looked at, frankly, as lesser than. I would also say in most cultures, in most of human history, that's been the case. Uh, we enjoy the privilege of a Judeo-Christian heritage here where there's at least um, a biblical framework for women as image bearers of God alongside of men and with the same dignity and worth and value with men. But that can quickly be lost if we're left to our natural selves or our Darwinian idea of survival of the fittest. Uh, marriage can be a scary place for a woman as the weaker vessel. She's going to count on you, fellas, to have the word as your standard and for you to be living with her in an understanding way. I want to talk about what that means, but I want to point out something. Jesus was the best at this, not only in the way he loves his bride, the church, which is perfectly in a sermon for in itself, but even in his treatment of women. Again, in his day, women... No one paid any attention or respect to women. Women were the last ones at the cross. They were the first ones at the tomb. They loved Jesus. They wept before him and on his feet. They took perfume and poured it out on his feet and washed his feet with their hair. Men rebuked them in his presence. He rebuked the men who rebuked them. He understood them. He lived with them as different, but altogether equally dignified and worthy and valuable as man. He didn't treat them as lesser, he treated them as unique. He understood them, and because of that understanding, they adored him. And Jesus, yet again, fellas, he is our standard in every way. We want to relate to women even as he did, even practically uh, in his natural self. And so the first thing to understand from this text, likewise, husbands, live with your wives 
in an understanding way, is to say unto knowledge or in accordance with the knowledge of who they are, who they were created to be, how they were created. In other words, men, is to know they're different. Women are different. Write that down, men. Women are different. And, and, and where men will find this to be a nuisance at best or at worst to mean they're just lesser than, men get frustrated. Why do you talk so much? Why are you so emotional? Um, why don't you understand me? You know, and we begin to think these things are problems they are having, that femininity is somehow a nuisance or uh, a weakness. Once you understand in this context, it's going to be held up as something very different. It's no weakness. It's going to be held up as precious. It's going to be held up in every way. The last, I'm just going to go ahead and let the cow the back. The last sense we're going to get is they are co-heirs of life. They are not in any way lesser, but in every way different. He wants you to embrace. The whole idea is you must understand them because they are unique. And this is readily obvious from early on. Boys and girls ought to notice the differences, not just physiologically, but, you know, recess time, they have different interests. The books they read that captivate their hearts and minds are very different. The things they dream about are categorically different. That's good. It's actually intended upon the Lord's creation of male and female as both image bearers that are unique, different, and complementary to one another. There's wired in, hardwired in by God differences, emotionally, physically, obviously, physiologically. And the first thing a husband must do, countercultural, again, in this day, women existed basically as slaves. And God is saying through Peter, hey, men, that's not how we do it in the church. You're going to embrace the uniqueness and the femininity of your wife as something to be heralded and uh, dignified and uh, uplifted as worthy and honored and respected and stewarded to the glory of God. Altogether precious. Um, Jesus did this perfectly. We will do it very imperfectly, but we must pursue it. She's not one of the guys. We don't talk to her like a guy. We don't treat her like a guy. We don't expect her to communicate or be understood as a guy. Those differences that are recognized as boys and girls become even more apparent as men and women. We had a women's retreat last weekend. I thought it was ironic that the women were gone for the text on women. Probably need a little better planning on that front. I apologize. But if you ladies were gone, please listen. Um, but uh, we did. I didn't speak of that one. I have spoken at a handful of women's retreats. I've spoken at a number, a great number of men's retreats. And the differences between a women's retreat and a men's retreat says it all. When you go to a women's retreat, ladies, you can tell me if this was true last week, but you can come to expect a few things. You show up, there's a greeting team. They're dressed really nice, they smell really good, they're awaiting you, they greet you with smiles, they're super warm, they have decorated name tags. There, there's colors involved. Yes, there's women pumping their fists. There's colors involved. There, uh, there's usually calligraphy. There's usually an entire program attached to the name tag. It's so well thought out and well organized. It's unbelievable. I'm astounded. You go into a, a room that's going to have place settings. Uh, everything is, is thought through. If there's a game, it's meaningful. If there's a skit, it's memorable. All right? Usually profound in meaning. I never can figure it out, but it's memorable. Uh, when, you, when there's worship, the women, man, they raise their hands. Uh, there's tears in worship. When I speak, 
there's uh, copious notes being taken by everyone on the brand new journal that they were gifted just for being at the retreat. And when we dismiss, you go out into a smorgasbord of fruits and vegetables and every kind of hummus dip. Now that is a women's retreat. And I always feel a little bit like a fish out of water. When you go to a men's retreat, you park, there's no one there looking for you. You wander around until somebody looks up and says, you lost? And he points you over direction. He usually has a spit cup. And uh, you get over to a table where there's just stickers in, in a Sharpie. And you write whatever you want and put it on your body somewhere. And uh, you come in to a time of, uh, where if there's a game, it's completely meaningless. If there's a skit, it's inappropriate. <laughs> and uh, usually somebody says, y'all want to sing a song or just, and you know, that guy's kind of glared down in silence. And, and if I teach, then uh, you're just hoping the guy's making a little eye contact here and there. And when we dismiss on prayer, there's a, a, uh, a, a tables full of Chips Ahoy and Cheetos. Altogether different experience. You need look no further than a men's and women's retreats to go, man, we're dealing with two very different kinds of humans. Yeah, that's where the text starts. Men live with her as unto knowledge, understanding she's totally different. You treat her like one of the guys you'll swing and radically miss. And your marriage will be dysfunctional at best, probably harmful. And the gospel will not be readily seen or heard through the testimony of your marriage. She's totally different. We're meant to live in an understanding way. I asked my wife if she would preach this sermon. She said no. <laughs> and that's good. It's probably not biblical. But I did say, ask her for, to help me. I said, hey, when you hear this, um, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way. What does that mean to you? I probably need a little help with this one. What does it mean to you that I would live with you in an understanding way? And she's given me some really good things, but one of them came out just immediately. Like, she, she said, I would like some time to think about that, but I'll go ahead and give you one now. She said, um, it means that you would be tender. First thing out of her mouth. That, which amazingly is where the text is going to go. It's going to talk about a weaker vessel. I'm going to get to that after I give you ten things. That's right, fellas. Buckle in. Uh, but the first thing is that you would be tender. My wife uh, and I got into it a couple weeks ago. We, uh, we don't argue that much by God's grace. And, and when we do, uh, it normally doesn't, it's normally not gets to the point of this level of frustration. But this was one, we hadn't had something that we were as deeply divided over in our thinking, that we were so convinced of something so polar opposite around this issue. It was an issue we needed to work through. And we were so convinced that we were right and the other one was wrong that it just became, the more we tried to explain, the more frustrating it got. And it rose to the level of code red. I mean, we had not, we had not been this frustrated about something with each other in 10 years. And I did what I do in the flesh. I just kind of finally got frustrated, made my final points. My body language said, I am done talking about this. I don't really want you to respond. I was fuming. I wasn't yelling and screaming or anything, but I was just clearly done. And my wife was wise enough to just leave me alone. And, um, and a few hours later, she sent me a text. She's much better at this than I am. Um, but she sent me a text and just said, hey, I love you. We couldn't disagree anymore on this issue. That's readily apparent. 
I hate that. I know we need to be able to talk about this. I'm, great, I'm perfectly fine disagreeing with you and you disagree with me. That's okay. You might be right, I might be wrong, but I just need kindness, courtesy, tenderness. And I was, I was you know, really convicted in that. I didn't have to, I, I could be right, I could be wrong. I mean, one of us is right, one of us is wrong. But she needs me to be gentle with her. In my tone, in the way I ask questions, and the way I think through this, and my, my flesh doesn't, doesn't go that direction. It's, I'm not wired towards tenderness. You ask any guy, uh, how do you want your friends to teach you, to treat you, sorry, tenderness won't be in his top 100. And that's, that's me dribbling with my left hand. She said, oh, I don't really, if you'll just be tender with me, and that's something I need a reminder on. If you have a cut in your body, where and you, you real quick grow real sensitive. You know there's a part of your body that needs attention, care, sensitivity, and the rest of your whole body has got to cater to this one spot. That's how it is. She needs sensitivity. She needs gentleness. You don't have to agree on everything, but the way you speak to her has to value her in a way that is tender. Um, by the way, the tendency for me and for many men is to, to ultimately, if frustration rises high enough, it's to get, it's to get big. It's, it's ironically to do exactly what the text says, be careful not to do this. If she's the weaker vessel and you better be understanding, what you better not do is kind of intimidate. You better not get big. You better not get loud. That would, that would completely turn upside down any chance of a healthy communication. It would do the opposite of honoring, esteeming, and respecting and dignifying her and her position. So your stewardship is to be tender with her because that's how you live with her in an understanding way. Peter already said in the verse immediately preceding, wives, um, you gotta live like this with your husband. Don't fear anything that is frightening. It is at least frustrating for a woman if a man's not tender. At worst, it's frightening. You can't frighten your wife, okay? Uh, as long as you're tender, you won't ever get there. That was number one. Um, the other one she stressed with me, so I'll make it number two, is that she, um, she feels the most value when I listen to her. Now, that doesn't mean listen, sports center on as I'm looking for a new grill, uh, multitask. She means a certain kind of listening. Communication with guys is altogether different. When I talk with guys, the, the, um, uh, the premium is efficiency. Make our points, we can cut each other off halfway. Oh yeah, I got it, got what you're saying. We can talk all over each other, interrupt each other. We can grunt, we can give body language. It's quick, it's decisive, it's efficient. With my wife, when I start trying to communicate that way, she just breaks down. She just throws her hand up, she's just frustrated. She doesn't want efficiency. She wants empathy. She's different. She's wired different. She wants me to be full, by the way, I felt better about this. I saw in my study this week, some research has been done on the male and female brain. They're different, no surprise. Uh, and the way, they, the way that your brain is stimulated upon the reception of information, a man receives information and half his brain comes on. Half his brain stimulated by the information he receives. I have no idea what the other half is doing, but half his brain. For a woman, both cylinders fire. For a woman, she takes in information and the whole, so she's able to really lock in and focus and be fully present in a way a man has to struggle towards, which makes sense of my whole life and my whole marriage. But I wanna tell you that we're meant to live in an understanding way. The way, uh, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. When our wife speaks, it's not just 
for the purpose of logistics. There's something in our heart, and when we are uh, listening, fully focused, listening to our eyes, what we're communicating is what's inside of you matters to me. As a matter of fact, it's got uh, inherent value. It matters more than anything else going on in my life that I could be doing. I don't think this fits in on this point, but comes to mind. You know, what, you know what our fights were in the first two, three years of our marriage? What, what Catherine and I, where we were disconnected. It was crazy. Uh, my entire single life, from the time I was a teenager until I got married, I pretty much ended every day the same way. I would watch the 10 o'clock sports center and then go to bed. Unless there was an emergency, like a wiffle ball game going on or something, I would watch 10 o'clock. That's how I ended my day. And then I got married. And I thought, now we can watch Sports Center together. <laughs> and my wife, like, you know, like two weeks in marriage, she's like, do you always watch this? And to her, she thought that the best part of the day would be to get in bed with me and just talk about our day. And, and not just share what happened, like talk about what happened and then how he responded to what happened and how he felt about how he responded to what happened and just layers. <laughs> and I was like, that's the last thing I want to do right now. And we just, man, we were just flying at really different altitudes. That was hard. Uh, anyway, we went to counseling on that one. Um, <laughs> and no, we, we do not end our days with Sports Center 15 years later, by the grace of God. Sorry, fellas, you just got to die to that. But I understood she feels loved, she feels understood when I listen empathetically, full, undivided attention. By the way, if you've ever had a bad listener, and we've all experienced a bad listener, Hopefully not, you're just not thinking of just your spouse right now. Hopefully you're uh, thinking of just a, a work conversation or a neighbor or whatever. You've had someone where you're communicating and they're distracted. Eyes shooting around, pull out their phone, scrolling around, isn't that crazy? And you don't think when that's happening, ah, this person is just so smart. They already know what I'm trying to say. I don't have to say it. It's not what you think. You start to get kind of quiet. Just go ahead and end the point because you, you know this. A, you think it's rude. But B, you go, they don't care what I'm saying. They don't, they don't really care about me. That's what it communicates. The last place you want that to be the norm is in your marriage. Don't let that, don't get in the ditch of that being how you communicate. Half there, half walking around, mixing conversations, step interrupting because you already got the point. There's got to be tenderness and there's got to be listening. And then there's, thirdly, there's got to be affection. I'm not talking about... Uh, physical intimacy. I'm talking about you've got to be able to show her proper levels of affection. And by the way, the love languages are helpful here in quality time, in acts of service, in physical touch, gifts, and words of affirmation. But you've got to be affectionate. You've got to be able to just hold her hand sometimes. You've got to be able to just hold her sometimes. That there's no end game. You're not just trying to get somewhere through that. You're just being affectionate. You're just making her feel loved through the means of affection. Uh, Catherine, a, a lot of times at night, she just wants me to hold her. Um, and now I don't always know this. I, we've, I, you, she's got to give me a few signals. I kind of need to know. Is this, are you wanting to get us to go somewhere or just is this it? Um, I'm okay, but I need to set my expectations accordingly. Because there are nights where... Obviously, uh, days, nights, I mean, physical intimacy is an important part of the marriage, but there are times, it can't be uh, always that every time there's affection, 
that's the end game. Or she will begin to feel manipulated. She'll begin to feel like all you really care about is her body and not her. So you got, if you're living with her in an understanding way, there's affection, there's a, a willingness to be with her non-sexually. Fourthly, she needs security. Uh, this one is under massive attack. Uh, our culture today is just trying to permeate your mind with the idea that a woman does not need a man, and that's fine. Um, but the Bible is clear, men, that you have a stewardship with your wife, a stewardship, a mantle of servant leadership, and that servant leadership mantle absolutely includes front and center that she should be secure. Let me give you, I know this is point four, I'm gonna give you three things under point four. Uh, first, that she should be provided for. It doesn't matter whether she is able to provide for herself. This isn't, this, there's no uh, indictment about a woman's inability to provide for herself. It simply means it's your responsibility. She must know that you would go to the ends of the earth to provide for her, just as Christ has done for you. If need be, she knows that you're not lazy. You're not passive in that. She doesn't have to worry about being provided for. She may have a job that she's really good at. She may make twice as much money as you. That doesn't matter. She knows that she doesn't have to because she has a husband who understands his role to be provider for her, his wife, in the home. That's his biblical responsibility. She must also know that he'll be protector. That, uh, and by the way, same thing applies. You may be, ladies, a black belt in karate. Your husband may not be able to walk and chew gum. And yet, if you are on a walk one evening and a... Uh, a really bad dude jumps out of the bushes to mug you, fellas, you'd better get between him and your wife. She may be more capable of taking him down, but you better get out front. He's gotta go through you to get to her. That's your biblical responsibility. Should he kill you, and then your wife whoop him, you died a noble death. And that's a death you'd better die because you are to be the protector of this woman who's a weaker vessel. It has nothing to do with whether she's able to defend her. I realize half the Avenger movies have a woman there. It doesn't matter. Your responsibility is her physical protection. Provision, protection, and presence. Probably the most important one, and maybe the most off experience. She's gotta know that you're not going anywhere. Her security is, that here, here's the words, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now who am I quoting here? Jesus, and he'll do it perfectly, but you'd better die on this hill. She's gotta know that even when she fails you, even when she underperforms as a wife, uh, even when she uh, uh, gets old or, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't uh, astound you with her physical beauty as she wants, whatever it may be, she's gotta know that you will demonstrate the love of Christ. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You don't have to worry about me going anywhere. There's a security knowing that you, you will be there. She doesn't have to earn that. You give her that as unto God. That's why he took a vow to God that said, till death do you part. So she's gotta have security in her husband. And fifth, she needs development. Catherine spoke to this one uh, with me. Development may not be the best word for it, but, but she needs me to remind her, especially in, the, in this season of life. Every one of these contextualized to the season, but these principles are always true. 
She, my wife's in a, in, a, in, a, in a tough spin cycle years of just raising babies. We got a teenager all the way down to a two-year-old, five boys, and man, her, her worlds are spinning. She's just kind of lost in being a mom in this sometimes lonely place with unintelligible, no adult conversations, no recognition. She could be doing a killer job. There's nobody there even to see it. There's nobody high-fiving, congratulating, encouraging. That's a lonely thing. I would never be able to do what she does. And she needs me to be able to speak value into that and to speak about how her giftings and her wirings and her sacrifice and her discipline and her willingness is making an eternal impact. And then, and then she, she needs me to speak those words over her and to continue to develop her. Even where does she, What does she need? And she needs rest. And what does she need to use these gifts and abilities she has to edify the church and to further the kingdom of God? It's as if, men, you've been given a garden to tend and your garden has one plant. One. And you got to know the condition of your plant. Is it wilting? Is it withering? Are there little holes in it because worms have gotten in? Your plant needs to be thriving. And so you're, you're, every day you're checking in. How's the state of your plant? You got, you got that weed. You got, a, you got a weed constantly and everywhere. You've got to fertilize. You got to water. You want to see a flourishing plant. My wife, if I'm not careful towards development, she'll just be exhausted She'll just be ground up by this season of life and all the exhaustion that goes with it. It's my responsibility to make sure that's not what's happening, that she's being developed toward it, just like the Lord in his sanctification of us. He doesn't save us and leave us. He develops us. He sees through Simon to Peter, and he helps Simon become Peter. He pushes us through constant um, encouragement and edification of his word and his spirit and rebuke towards being who he created us to be. Husbands, that's, that's your stewardship with your wife. She doesn't merely exist to have a job or keep a home or raise a kid. You are to see through her all that she can be and develop her towards that end. You don't want your wife ever thinking, what could I have been if I had never married this guy? All right, you want her to be trying to hold on for dear life as you pour in and invest into her. Um, by the way, that one's easy for me to lose sight. In a few of these areas, I'm really good. In a few, I'm okay. And, and, and then in a few, I really struggle. This is deeply convicting for me. I want to make sure you hear me say this. I'm, a, I'm an eight or so in a couple of them. I'm five, six in a lot of them, and I'm two, three in a couple. This one's hard for me. I just get caught up in kind of my side of what's going on. The plates I'm uh, juggling or, or plates I'm spinning, balls I'm juggling, and I can just kind of run my own rat race over here and every once in a while pass her for a you know, fist bump, and, a, and, a, and she needs more from me than that, which actually goes into the next one. Sixthly, she feels understood and valued with time. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is a really hard one for me. Um, she didn't marry me so we could uh, uh, coexist in the parenting of five children. Uh, my wife, the truth is, uh, was willing to marry me because there was a time in our life when we were dating and I convinced her that the most captivating experience of my life was simply being with her. Instinctively, I did that because I wanted her to marry me. And so I was tender and I was gentle and I was interested in her development and all these things we're talking about. Instinctively, that's what I had to do to win her over. And here's what the text says, men... What you did instinctively to win her, you now have to do as a discipline to the glory of God and in honor of your wife. You don't have to do it to win her anymore. She said, I do. She's locked in. Supposed to be. 
And that, for so many men, is permission to back off, to slow down, to pursue other things like we once pursued her. And what happens is she gets less and less and less and less of us. My wife would, uh, would give up any other thing I could possibly give her for undivided time with me. That would be the most precious commodity for her. That would communicate to her the most that I understand her, who she is, what she needs, and what values her. That I would give her time, the most precious commodity that I have. So men, by the way, if you don't have a date night, let me just encourage you to get real practical with that. You gotta have one. My wife and I, for the first, gosh, 10, 12 years of our marriage, that was so sacred to us. I even had my own friends going, they'd have poker nights and softball nights and different nights, and I was, wanted to do everything. And we started having children, and I just, for a while, I'd kind of try to do it all. Then I kind of couldn't do it all, and then I slowly was less. And they were like, hey, dude, you don't have to go on a date night every week. And I was like, well, I, actually, I'm pretty sure I do. Because there's really little other time. Things begin to get squanched in our season, and I'm just kind of, we're just, we can run two parallel races, but barely, barely really be with each other. I've got to have something that's front and center where I, I don't meet her from work somewhere. Don't do date night like that. All right, uh, and don't invite her just to come to poker night, okay? Um, that doesn't really count, all right? I get it. Um, you have to actually go home and take a shower and try to smell better than normal, try to look decent, open the door, take her somewhere, no technology, uh, listening for empathy. Like, you've got to do all this stuff we're talking about for two hours very, in a very disciplined fashion, to make sure that you don't lose your edge and it just all together goes away. Like it is, it is, it is a, like it's a drumbeat. I will, I will sharpen my sword here and hope that I can keep pursuing you like this for the rest of the week. And some weeks I'll do better than others, but we come back and I'm gonna absolutely pursue you like I did when I first met you tonight. And we, man, we've really struggled with this the last three years. Our lives are, are really, it is really hard to guard this. But I, and, and, I, and we feel the effects of it. Like it is crucial because we have to do as a discipline what we once did instinctively or we're not living with her in an understanding way. She said, when I do marriages and that, when that wife says, I will love you um, for richer, for poorer, for sickness and in health, for better or for worse, I often think about, I'm often convicted. Like my wife said that and it's true, she'll love me uh, in seasons we've not had much, in seasons we've had plenty, that's no problem for her. Uh, in sickness and in health, that's no problem for her. For better, for worse, we've been through some stuff. She does well with that. But if I expect her to love me like that according to her vows, and I don't make time for her, that's unfair. That's, that's making it as difficult as possible for her to be a wife that is valued and understood. I'll, every time a woman says that, I just have this kind of feeling of, uh, I don't know what that is. It's, it's empathy, I think. I'm always thinking, I hope he won't do what's natural for man to do. And that this be the culmination of his pursuit. And now he's going to go pursue other things. I always want to kind of stop right there in the vows and say, do you really understand what she's saying? Are you sure? This doesn't end here. This begins here. And seventhly, she needs help. You go, wait, I thought she's the helpmate. Yeah, that's right. If anybody in here has ever been a leader in any capacity, even if you're not, you can probably understand this one with common sense. If you lead a team at work, 
or if you're in a leadership position, ever have been on an athletic team or in the military or whatever, if you've ever been stewarded with any form of leadership, you would find out quickly. Or heck, if you ever had a leader, how does that leader become a good leader? He cares about you and your needs. He's the kind of leader that says, hey, how can I help you? It's the kind of leader that you take a bullet for. That's what you love about a good boss. I'm sure that's what you love about a good general or a good commander. That, uh, that's what makes a coach a good coach, that he's a player's coach. They don't just tell him what to do, he loves them. A good husband will ask his wife, how can I help you? It's not easy to be a helpmate. How can I help you be a good helper? And again, this is different for seasons. Uh, in the season I'm in with my wife, that is a loaded question. And it is a question that scares me to death. How can I help you? Actually, I gotta go. I'm so scared of what she can say because it, it'll play to all my insecurities and all my weaknesses and all the difficulties. When I watch what that woman does during the day, my goodness. But I've got to say daily, how do I help you? She needs me desperately to speak value into what she's doing, to make time for her, and to help her just as she is doing everything she's doing in such a front and center way to help me. There's got to be mutual submission and love, Ephesians 5. How do I help you? Is it logistics? You know, you know what makes my wife feel loved is if we put our whole week on this massive, like, eight foot by six foot calendar she's putting on a wall. This, it stresses me out. Uh, but but she, she can go, okay. And she writes, she writes everything in, you know, where I'm gonna be and who I'm gonna be, and now I'm committed to all this stuff and I have to take a picture of it and have no chance of following this, but it makes her feel good. Um, there are days, to illustrate this, where maybe there's been loving kindness demonstrated during the day. Maybe I've got hopes that this day may end really well. There may be physical intimacy involved at the end of this day. And, if, uh, and at dinner on such a day, if we eat and I finish up as quickly as I can and say, uh, all right, sweetheart, hey, I'll be back in the bedroom, hint, hint, see you after a while. And if I chunk my plate in the dishwasher and head back to the back, leaving her, just stay with me on this, not that I've ever been guilty of this, but leaving her to um, clean the kitchen, wipe down the tables and the counters, do the dishes, get the kids, shower into bed and do the routine, while I take a shower, uh, make, make myself ready for her to behold me uh, and look upon me delightfully and longingly as her husband. I promise you, by the time she gets back there, that ain't her reaction. <laughs> it only took me a couple times to realize this was not the way to her heart. She's the most uh, sensual organ in a woman's body is her mind. You've got to mess with her mind. Her seeing you in a Speedo prepared for is not exciting to her. Matter of fact, matter of fact, it's scary. That's what it, that's what it says here. For the wife, fear, anything that is frightening, that's, that's in the category of frightening. But let me tell you what's exciting. You say at the end of dinner, hey, uh, hey, sweetheart, why don't you take a break? Huh? Why don't you take a break? Just go have some me time, go get a bath, go do, go read, go, go do whatever. And she says, you, you've got all this and you, you just lie through your teeth. You say, yeah, I got it. <laughs> and you send her back. And then you look at the guys and say, hey, we're gonna get through this together, all right? Or somebody's gonna get hurt. And, uh, and, and then you together, you clean that kitchen, you take care of the animals, uh, not the children, the actual animals. And, and, and then the children. <laughs> You send them up, and they have to bathe, and, and you've got to do uh, 
Then you gotta do the second bath because they didn't use any soap. And then you gotta do um, devotionals and prayer time and sing the songs and read the stories. You do the whole thing. Then you go down and you see what condition your wife's in. Your wife, at that point, you're gonna find her relaxed, alive, refreshed. She's gonna be downright excited. Now, you'll have no energy left to do anything, but you, you will have served her well. She needs help. You with me? All right. She's not a servant in the home. She's your wife. Eighthly, um, she needs romance. In Hebrew, the, the word that captures this, one of the three words used in Song of Solomon is dode. There's a mingling of souls. Uh, men are so good at this by necessity when they're dating, as I've mentioned, they're so bad at this as husbands. It's um, for, for a myriad of reasons. Men, you've got to keep the flame, the dode flame of love lit in your marriage. That's, the, that's what she expected from you. And that's what you owe to her in honor of the Lord. The world's meant to see from you a tender, loving, gentle, listening, intentional, romantic pursuit of your wife not just a coexisting. If you hadn't been romantic in a long time, you need to go to school. Remember what you used to do. Matter of fact, uh, well, I'll save that for the end. Ninthly, you gotta be, uh, she needs out of you leadership. She needs leadership. Um, this is every area of life. She needs to know that um, you believe uh, your life and your marriage and your home, there's plans, it's going somewhere. Um, this is not, uh, you're not merely punching a clock and coming home and vegging out. We're not merely spinning circles, like we are taking on the forces of darkness as agents of light. There is ministry all around us. We are on the Great Commission. Is there a plan for our children? Is there a plan for the spiritual development of our children? Uh, don't make your wife wonder that. Come right through the front door. It's a team effort. My wife, by the way, is so good at this, so intentional at this, so consistent in this. It's hard for me to keep up, but I'd better give intentionality to it, give structure, participate, lead, that we are literally raising our children in the Lord, not passively, intentionally. That our marriage, there's development for our marriage. I wanna see our marriage 30 years from now be far more one, a demonstration of oneness, than it is today. Is there a plan for that? Is there intentionality? Is there development? She needs to see you intentionally leading. That's what a leader does. You're out front. You're seeing the needs coming down the pike and you're getting out in front of them. That honors a woman. See you take initiative on behalf of her and your home, your children, your community. She, let her wonder how she's gonna keep up and have to pray for God to give her energy to sustain her as she keeps up with this, keeps up with this man who's running a good race at a good pace. And then, tenthly, humility. Because we will fail in these nine areas so often, your wife just needs you to be humble enough to say, hey, sweetheart, I am dropping the ball. Today, you probably need to say it. I know I do. My wife looked at my notes this morning. She said, this looks great. When are we going to start? <laughs> and uh, she was joking for the most part. But it's not like I've mastered this. Trust me, this is a pursuit. This is growth. She needs me to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I'm not knocking it out of the park in all these areas. Um, I'm sorry that I'm, uh, I sh I'm not always tender with you. I'm sorry I don't listen well. In the moment she needs it, she needs general. She needs to see me confess sin, repent of sin, and pursue intentionally out of trust and honor of the Lord. She needs to see humility. 
she will sleep so good at night. If she, she doesn't need you to be perfect, but she needs you to be perfectible. She'll sleep so good if she sees you pray over her night and you ask the Lord's forgiveness for not loving her well, not just hers. And she's like, she's going to be hearing, my husband longs to be a good husband. That will make her feel so good. Just that your desire is to be a 1 Peter 3, 7 husband. And the knowledge that you hadn't already attained it. That's going to be enough right there for your wife. It's humility. Okay, look at, look at what the rest of this says quickly. It says, you do this showing honor to her as the weaker vessel. This is critical. That's an outline of how, what it would look like to live with her under knowledge as someone altogether different and yet a co-heir of the coming kingdom. What does weaker vessel mean? It doesn't mean lesser. It means weaker, yes, she's uh, physically um, not as strong. There, she's uh, uh, more breakable. Uh, she's weaker in stature and strength. Listen to what that means. It's not a weaker vessel. There's two vessels, man and woman. A weaker vessel doesn't mean Tupperware. It doesn't mean the less valuable of the two because she's weaker. It actually means porcelain. It means fine china. It's weaker and more precious. Okay, so the idea of the, of the text is, I don't know what you do with your Tupperware. When you walk in our house, it's just kind of in a messy stack to the right in the nastiest closet in our house. Okay? You go in there and you never can find a top that matches up with a thing. You end up just duct taping it. It's Tupperware. That's not our fine china. If you make it into our entryway, um, you, we've got a, a, a whole dresser that's just there to hold the fine china that we only use twice a year. And it's passed down from generation to generation. And the boys had better not touch it. And on the day that we eat of it, when we're eating on Christmas from the fine china, and one of those boys grabs their plate to go take it to the sink. Whoa, 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 whoa. I need one man on it with both hands and another on the other side. I need one man underneath. And this is precious. That's worth more than you, son. They got to know. This is our fine china. We got to be careful. The context here is you treat her like that. The weaker is not in any way communicating less value. By the way, you go, are you getting that from the text? Yes, I'm getting it from the text. Next phrase, since they're heirs with you of the grace of life. It's just screaming through the front door. Don't fall into the cultural norm of almost every culture in human history and think that women are lesser because they're weaker. No, they're co-heirs. They're co-image bearers. Every bit of dignity worth, they are precious. God has already said, precious is this, the godly character of a wife, the blood of Jesus, and the sincerity of saving faith. That is, that is to be esteemed in your house. You be careful with that. Be gentle with that. Have the utmost diligence in your caring for the weaker vessel, the fine china in your house. And it says, since they're heirs of you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I remember when I was doing a uh, program with um, Pastor Tommy Nelson in Texas, and I'd always just wondered what that verse meant. And so I asked him, I said, Tom, what does it mean to live, um, live with your wife in an understanding way as a weaker vessel because she's an heir with you of the grace of life so that your prayers won't be hindered? Like, what does he mean by that? Because surely it doesn't mean God's not going to hear your prayers. Like, well, I'm trying to figure out and Tom said, I'll tell you what that means. You break fellowship with that woman, you break fellowship with God. 
You don't honor her, esteem her as the fine china in your life, as the primary stewardship God has given you, the first place of determined success in your life on can you live with this altogether different person and human in an understanding, God-honoring way because of who he is and what he's done for you. If you can't do that, don't waste your time praying because God ain't listening. I said, are you serious? He said, yeah. For many of us, there's like a wall between you and God. Prayers going up, nothing coming back. For many, you don't have to look any further than your marriage. God has said this is so significant to be so completely, radically counter-cultural in how you treat a woman, your wife, from what the world says and screams and thinks and believes. This is so significant. If you are unwilling to be tender and gentle and loving and intentional and developing and romantic and pursuing and giving towards her? Then your prayers have no place with me. It is hard for me to get my round around that, but I uh, meditate on 1 Corinthians 11. Christ is our head, men, and you are her head. So, so here's, the, here's the thing. When you as a head, as a, as, in the, as a position of headship in relation to your wife. When you don't pursue that stewardship intentionally, humbly, repentantly, then here's the deal. You have Jesus who has done for you what you are unwilling to do for her. Am I right? He has literally, he considered equality with God, nothing to be grasped came to earth in flesh as a babe in a manger, lived a life you and I couldn't live because we couldn't live it, died a death we deserve to die because of our sin. He bore the crown of thorns. He bore the curse. He died so that by his blood we might be able to save. Then we creates in us, he draws us to the truth, creates in us new creations, gives us the stewardship of the coming kingdom. And he says, now you go esteem and do for her what I've done for you. And when you and I are lazy right here, that's offensive to God. In light of all I have done for you, you're unwilling to live with her and understanding. Have I not been understanding with you? You and I are not going to outdo God on this one. He's gone so far beyond understanding with us to unconditional, self-sacrificial, unimaginable love. And he says, live with the one that's very different. Her femininity is not a nuisance. It's not what's wrong with her. It's not a weakness. It is to be dignified and esteemed and treasured. The general tells the lieutenant, if you can't honor your company, then don't waste your time coming back to me. You've got no favor with me. Well, this week I happened upon, I was preparing for the marriage conference uh, Thursday night, and I happened upon the letters Catherine wrote to me when we were dating. I saved every one, and I'm glad I did, although they're super cheesy. 
And, uh, and by the way, I told her that. She said, you want to see the ones you wrote to me? I said, uh-uh. <laughs> I'd like to burn them. Um, but, you know, you're just so in love. And it's just, you know, some of it's kind of awkward to read. Like, I'm, that's why I'm not reading one. Um, but I'll tell you this. I was so convicted by this. I got over 50 letters. And I was reading them. And uh, I was watching her fall in love with me. And I was watching me do all this stuff in order to win over her affection. And I was watching it. I watched her go from being respectful and appreciative and, uh, you know, just thankful for kind of the, 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 you know, the manners and the respect. Then I watched it kind of deepen into um, her heart being pulled and trying to figure out if she could really trust me and, and de- determining that, she was, that I was a man that she could follow and love and get behind that was going somewhere that had a vision that God had surrendered to God's vision for his life. Then I, I watched her get to the point where she was really loving me and trying to be real careful with her heart, but she was falling for me. Then I watched her get to the point where she was very openly vulnerable and saying, you are this man that loves me, that is kind to me, that is tender with me, that I can trust, that I can believe in. And I, I just read this and I started tearing up and thinking, man, here's the question, am I still the man that she could write those letters to today? I sure hope these letters weren't just, I remember when you were. I was really convicted, I was spurred in my spirit. I wanna go just love the heck out of this woman because that's what I did then and she was counting on me that this was gonna be a lifetime. That's what I made her believe. The letters bore that out. She was banking on it, that she was utterly precious to me. And that's why she married me. Man, that's why she married you. She believed you when you said the things you said, when you pursued her the way she did. She didn't think this was merely a means to an end. She thought, he delights in me. And I could do this for the next 50 years or so. And I want you men to ask yourself, can she write those same letters to you today? And if not, be careful. You won't find a stronger word than the Lord gave you. Don't waste your time praying to me if you're not pursuing her. Father, we need to heed this in every way. As men, you've given us a mantle of servant leadership in the home. I said last week something that was true, that we needed to make it as easy as possible for the women to honor God and how they are submitted to us. That we can make that hard or we can make that easy. And the same is true with this. Our wives can make it hard for us to lead them. They can be quarrelsome and cantankerous and harsh. They can make it easy. But we are not to love them according to the conditional nature of what they deserve, the temporary nature. It is according to your unconditional love. What you deserve from us is demonstrated to you and how we treat them. And so may we, as men, live with our wives in an understanding way, since they are the weaker vessel and yet co-heirs of the grace of life. And Father, May you open up the heavens. May we speak to you and may you speak to us and may there be a free exchange, nothing hindering our prayers because of our inability or unwillingness 
to love our wives tenderly and with understanding. I'll pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.